Thanks, man. Love you both. Well, church, it truly is an honor to be here. Um, as, as Peter said, uh, I am one of the pastors at Christ Community Baptist Church in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. Um, why Prestonsburg? Prestonsburg is where I was raised. I graduated from Prestonsburg High School in 2012. Uh, my wife grew up uh, in a small town, Paintsville, not far from there. We live in Prestonsburg, Prestonsburg's home. And Prestonsburg is where we felt the Lord really calling us to plant another sound, biblical, gospel-proclaiming local church in the hills of Appalachia. And so, by God's grace, we've been able to see that come to fruition. Um, That didn't come out of a vacuum. Um, And my wife, Allie, is back there with my daughter, Annabeth, and our son, Benjamin, who's one, is downstairs in the nursery, hopefully not causing mayhem, but... Um, so we spent um, a little over almost about 16, 17 months at Lakeville Baptist Church in Sayersville being trained by Pastor Justin Williams, Justin Bailey, and uh, Brian Helton on essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, what does it look like to plant a church? Uh, much of what Peter is going to believe to uh, strengthen, encourage, and, and equip those pastors with That's what we were in at Lakeville, and I co-pastor Christ Community Baptist Church with another elder, uh, Seth Daniels, who's um, shepherding the saints there this morning, and so I'm so thankful for that. But there are no words uh, for me to adequately describe the gratitude and the, and the, the thankfulness of, of not only just Seth and I and our entire families, but all of the saints at Christ Community Baptist Church for your support. Um, and I want you guys, I hope that you guys see that the, the ministry in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, and in Eastern Kentucky and beyond, I pray that you guys see your hand in that. And that's just an extension of the ministry here at Risen King. Uh, and so we consider you guys to be family. We love you all so much. Um, you have a phenomenal pastor. I'm so thankful for Peter and his and he, him shepherding me from a distance, he's already encouraged me in ways um, that he doesn't even realize. And so we're just so thankful for this local church. And we're, we're thankful to be able to partner with you guys in the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Christ and until Christ returns. We'll, we'll, we'll do it until Christ returns. Um, and so with that said, I do want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. We have been journeying through the Psalms at CCBC. Um, we've taken a break from the Gospel of John. That's where we've been. Um, we're, we're, once we get back into the fall in August, we'll start on John 7. Um, we've worked our way through the Gospel of John up to John 7, line by line, and it's been so enriching and encouraging. But um, I love the Psalms, and one of the reasons it being is that the Psalms have a unique encouragement that no other book has, and we see that no matter your circumstances in life, whether you're in a season of, of triumph and of joy, or whether you're in a season of deep grief and sorrow, the Psalm has encouragement for us this morning. And so as you turn to Psalm 37, let's return once more to our triune God in prayer. Father, again, I thank you for this Lord's Day. Father, what a blessing it is that we get to gather as a local church. 
Father, I pray that everything that we've already done, from the hymns that we've sung, from the prayers that have been offered unto you, from how we've engaged with one another as the body of Christ, Father, we pray that you have been exalted. We pray that you have been glorified. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to your word, that you would help us to find fresh rest in Christ crucified. Father, help us to find fresh rest for a week of obedience unto our King ahead. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 37, and I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. But the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will be satisfied. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish in smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or, seed, or, or his seed begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends his, his seed is a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so that you will dwell forever. 
For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever, but the seed of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not forsake him in his hand. He will not condemn him when he is judged. Hope for Yahweh and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Observe the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have posterity, but the transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in times of distress. Yahweh helps them and protects them. He protects them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 37, attributed to King David, it reads like a proverb, doesn't it? And in the Hebrew, we see that this is an acrostic psalm, meaning it's naturally divided in 22 sections with the Hebrew um, alphabet to convey certain nuggets of wisdom to the reader. Now, we're not going to cover the entirety of this psalm. In fact, uh, that would take uh, many more hours than what I have currently at hand. But we are going to camp in verse 39 this morning. That the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is the strength in time of distress. Now, we will cover the context of Psalm 37 because it's particular to verse 39. Psalm 37 ultimately divides all people into two categories. It is not race. It is not economic status, gender, or nationality. Psalm 37 categorizes all mankind as either being righteous or wicked. And what is abundantly clear in the passage of Scripture is God's disposition is uniquely particular to these two groups. One group experiences covenant blessings of mercy and protection, while the other experiences God's wrath and judgment. I believe Psalm 37 is a great comfort for Christians in in, in this life. I believe it is this psalm that we ought to be turning to frequently in the Christian life. Primarily to remind us of three important themes that we have read in this psalm. Themes such as that God has not and will not forsake the righteous. Turn your eyes back to verses 23 through 25. The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. I was young, and now I am old, yet I have seen, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. 
no matter our circumstances, and we can imagine the circumstances of David here in Israel. We don't, aren't sure where David is in his current life at this point, but we know he's experiencing moments of distress. We know he's experiencing heartache. We know he's experiencing trials and tribulation. Yet David finds it significant and important to remind the people of God that no matter how our circumstances may look, no matter how grim life seems today, no matter how prosperous the wicked may seem, Yahweh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has not forsaken his people. Secondly, we see in this psalm that despite the wicked's current luxury and pleasure, they will be judged. Take your eyes back to verse 1 and 2. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. David reminds us, don't envy those who plot wickedness. Don't envy evildoers. It looks like they're living the best life. And friends, let's be honest, they are living their best life now. Because what does the psalm tell us? What does David tell us? That the Lord laughs at them for he sees that their day is coming. The believer, we're not living our best life now. Our best life is the life to come. That doesn't subtract from the joys and the blessings and the covenant mercy that we've received in the triune God today. We have joy today, but it is nothing to compare to the joy of eternal life. So David is reminding us, don't envy wicked, uh, evildoers. Don't envy the wicked. It may seem that they're enjoying their plots of evil and, and wicked schemes, but it's coming to an end. God has not turned a blind eye to their wickedness. He will judge. And then thirdly, we see in Psalm 37 that not only will God not forsake the righteous, not only will he judge the wicked, but we also see that obedience to Yahweh will be rewarded. How significant is this reminder for us in the Christian life? Being justified in Christ is an enormous blessing for those who have been justified by faith through grace and Christ alone. But we need to be reminded that your obedience today has eternal significance, has eternal reward. Verses 5 through 6 of the psalm, commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Verse 34, hope for Yahweh and keep his way. Obey his law, obey his commands, follow God. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. And so we see that Psalm 37 has many encouraging themes for us as the body of Christ. But again, I want us to take our eyes specifically this morning to just one verse in this psalm. Psalm 39. But the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in times of distress. Here we come to a truth in which we must say 
is the foundation for sound doctrine. Now, in Scripture, salvation refers to, especially when we're reading the Old Testament, it can refer to physical deliverance. We see of this with David in Psalm 91, how he's seeking physical deliverance, especially as he's fleeing from Absalom. But obviously, we know that salvation can refer to the spiritual realm, uh, spiritual deliverance from God's wrath, forgiveness of sin, having our sins and transgressions covered. And I think Psalm 32 is a beautiful text of that in which David says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, whether David is referring to physical deliverance or spiritual deliverance, his appeal in verse 39 is that everything that he receives from God comes from outside of himself. Whether it is physical deliverance or spiritual deliverance, salvation that comes from Yahweh comes from outside the individual. Salvation comes to the believer and not from the believer. This is critical for us to understand that the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. Now, Psalm 3 verse 8, that is also ascribed to David, it carries a similar tune. It says, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. So if salvation belongs to God, then only God is the one who can grant salvation to us. And I want us to see what can sometimes be missed in commonly used translations of of the Bible. I, I love the ESV. I use it very often. But when you're in the Old Testament and you see the covenant name of God, the Tetragrammaton, you see it capitalized as L O R D. And many Christians, especially new believers, when they read that in the Old Testament, they, they, their mind, when they hear the word Lord, it, they, they go, and for good reason so, they think of the second person of the Trinity. They think of the Lord Jesus Christ. But David is reminding the Israelites, and I think we ought to be reminded as well, that when David says that the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh, the Israelites' understanding of this is that the whole triune God, all three persons of the Godhead, have a role in our salvation. And and you guys know this, that the Father is the one who ordains. He orchestrates our salvation in the Son. And it is Christ who earns the righteousness that is necessary for me and you to be saved. When Christ comes in in his virgin birth, which is necessary... Because if Christ is not born of a virgin, then he is not able to bypass Adam's original sin. He can't be a perfect substitute if he inherits Adam's sin. We need a sinless Savior. We need a perfect substitute. Therefore, the virgin birth is not just an aspect of the Advent story that has no significance. It is critically significant Because it leads us to Christ being able to, in his active obedience, live the life according to God's law that you and I have no hope in living. We need Jesus. And we have, by the glory of God and praise be to his name, who has come and lived the life that you and I can't live in every way. God, in the second person of the Trinity, 
Christ. He has gone ahead of us, His people, by faith in Him. And He has obeyed God in every single way in which you and I have not obeyed God. And in Christ's passive obedience, He goes to Calvary, not to atone for His own sins, but to atone for the sins of His people. He obeys the Father in going to the cross. He willingly goes to the cross to atone for all the sins of those whom the Father has given him so that we can be raised on the last day. And the story, as you guys know, doesn't end there. We need Christ's resurrection because without the resurrection, we have no hope that what Christ did in his incarnation, in his coming, in his life. We have no hope that it was satisfactory before the Father if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. So in the person of Jesus, we see the one who has not only overcome sin, but also death. The one who has not only freed us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but one day soon when our faith becomes sight, the very presence of sin. And then we see the Holy Spirit who applies this finished work of Christ to sinners like us. It is the Holy Spirit who woos us and draws us to the Redeemer. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to not just think by an off chance that we just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think I'm going to give my life to Christ. I think I'm going to become a living sacrifice And follow Jesus. No, we have to be convinced of that. And it's the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration who makes us go from willingly rejecting Christ in unbelief and in love for sin to willingly adoring Christ and treasuring Him as the greatest and most willing cause for our lives to willing to lay our lives down for the cause of Christ. But not only that, the Spirit draws us to Christ, applies His righteousness to us, but He also sanctifies us. And the Spirit reveals the salvation of sinners to the local church through a holy life. So I pray that we've all seen that we're not just taking into account that someone has come to faith by what they say and merely profess, But every single Christian here, we ought to be able to look at each other's lives and say, I see the marks of the Holy Spirit in this young man, in this young lady. I see the marks of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I can believe this profession of faith to be genuine. So we see from Psalm Psalm 37 verse 39 that salvation is a work of the triune God. And, and I hope I can be a fly on the wall as Peter's walking through the New Testament to those pastors in Belize because we'll see that in the New Testament that our salvation is indeed a work of the triune God. And it's not just a work of Christ as if he's doing something that the Father and Spirit aren't interested in. But the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh the triune God. So Christian... Where has your salvation come from? It has come from the triune God of heaven and earth. And if our salvation, here's the implication here. If our salvation is not from ourselves, but rather God, then this verse is also a humbling reality. Not only is it the foundation for sound biblical doctrine, that salvation comes from God, 
but it's also a humbling reality because the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. Therefore, this strips all prod one might have in boasting of their standing before God. And I think, and, and, and I, I love pastoring a Reformed Baptist church, and I had to go through this uh, period in my own sanctification, but when we see younger Christians specifically come to the understanding of the doctrines of grace, and you guys know where I'm already going with this, when they come to understand that salvation truly is from Yahweh and not something that we've done in participation of this salvation, It's not 50% what I do and 50% of what God has done. It's not like God gives me the grace and I give him the faith in return. But when we see that all of our salvation from beginning to end is a work of God, is a work of the triune God, we see many individuals come, and they're excited about these truths, but we see many of these individuals, when they come to understand the doctrines of grace, it fills them with pride rather than humility. But every mature Christian, and by God's grace, I've been able to come to this understanding. I'm not going to act ignorant or, or try to dismiss younger days. But every mature believer comes to the understanding that when we view the sovereign grace of God, it ought to lead us to humility rather than pride. For it's all a work of God. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. Therefore, what reason do you and I have to boast in ourselves? Glory be to God alone. Charles Spurgeon once said, Humility has been rightly said to be the correct estimate of ourselves. Growing Christians think nothing of themselves, but get this, full-grown Christians know themselves to be less than nothing. Less than nothing. I think back on my, uh, my conversion to Christ. Uh, by God's grace, I was, born, or I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents uh, divorced when I was two. Uh, my uh, uh, father was a uh, FBI agent. Uh, my mother was an attorney. And they, I was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We lived in Birmingham for a while. And then once my parents split, uh, my mother came back to Prestonsburg, where she was from. And um, I'm so thankful for her. She raised me in church. She tried to get me in church as more Sundays than not. Um, I knew the name of Jesus. And there's many days that I even take that for granted. Even though I didn't know, I didn't have faith in Christ, just being able to know who is the Redeemer, what has he done, Even though I was spurning in an unbelief, God allowed me to be raised in a home and to be able to gather at least a couple Sundays a month to hear the gospel. But it wasn't until I was 19 years old um, that the Lord saved me. I was a freshman in college at Emory & Henry, a small college, about 1,000 students in Abington, Virginia. Um, The Lord saved me, opened my eyes to my sin, but prior to that, and there may be some young individuals here who kind of, who can, um, you know, you, you understand where I'm coming from. I had what I would call a justification via comparison. Uh, I, I knew the gospel. I thought I was a Christian. And that's the irony here. I got saved at 19, but I was even baptized as an infant. You'll have to forgive me for that. 
I was baptized again at age nine because I saw some other kids doing it. And, and so here I was as a freshman in college thinking, you know, I've already checked this box. I'm good with God. I've got salvation. Uh, I, I, I know how to answer the, the Bible trivia questions. Aren't I good? But we, what, I, what the Lord revealed to me is that my sense of justification was not according to God's standard of righteousness, but my own standard of righteousness. And friends, you and I know this to be true. When you judge yourself according to your own standard of morality, you always pass the test. You always pass the test. I'm better than so-and-so. I'm saved. I'm good with God because I don't cuss near as much as Johnny does. I go to church way more than he does. My relationship with my significant other isn't like this. Uh, I'm more of a uh, morally upright standing of a person than this. I'm way more politically conservative than, than he is. You see, this is what so often, especially um, of our youth, tend to do these days. And that's really what motivated me, not to, not to uh, go into deep of a rabbit hole, but that's what motiv- motivated me to spend six years of my first years in ministry specifically as a student pastor. Because I became aware that there are many teenagers growing, in Eastern Kentucky, growing up in eastern Kentucky with a false understanding of the grace of God. They, they, they think that God's grace is just something that enables them to maybe get started on the right path, but once they start on this path, then their own works of righteousness need to take over to, to get through the finish line. That's not what we see on the pages of Scripture, is it? We see that a righteousness is granted to us by faith alone. Yes, works are necessary, but get this, it's not your works. It's the works of Christ. His works are sufficient. And when I was at Emory as a 19-year-old, I wish I could capture that moment in which the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to finally see that the holiness that I read was required in God's law, that holy standard of God's law, I could never meet it. It was like a a weight lifted off my shoulders when I finally understood that salvation is truly by sovereign grace and that meant that it wasn't up to my works according to this law, but Christ's works alone and that his righteousness that he earned in his life is given to me by faith alone, just by fixing my eyes on Christ and trusting in him as an all-sufficient savior and redeemer, that I was saved on that basis alone, I was finally able to see this book, which I barely read prior to the age of 19. I was finally able to see it as something that wasn't trying to strip me from all the fun in life, something that wasn't trying to rob me from living a life of true joy and contentment and happiness. But it was, a, it was a book, it was a word, it was a revelation from God allowing me to find true rest from a fallen world in a perfect Savior. And, and these are the things that we're seeing here in verse 39. This is the implication that the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. 
Yes, it is an important biblical truth. Yes, it is a central doctrine that God is the one who saves. But has that truth gone from your head to your heart? Has that truth traveled down to your personal circumstance where you truly believe that When you gathered here this morning, did you gather this morning trying to appease a God, trying to make yourself worthy before the Lord? Did you gather in an attempt to uh, make yourself uh, more righteous before the Lord? Lord, to earn His grace and and favor? Beloved, if that was you, and it was me for many years... May the words that the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh give you comfort that what God requires of you in salvation, He has finished in and of Himself and applies that work to you by grace through faith alone. This is the good news of the gospel. That you yourself can be saved sitting in the chair that you find yourself in this morning. God doesn't need any work of yours. God doesn't need me to become a preacher and to preach His Word, to make myself worthy in His sight. The only thing we need is the only thing that we have already received, which is a perfect substitute for ourselves. A perfect Redeemer. A perfect Savior. Who is Christ our Lord. The Spirit of God had to open my eyes to the reality that I was basing my sense of justification off my own fallen standard. And many of you, um, I've received this rebuttal personally. And from this text, one could say, but Alex, the text clearly says that salvation is from Yahweh, but who's it to? It's to the righteous. It's to those who are good. Have you ever heard that God only gives his blessings to those who are good, or um, this is a commonly used phrase in, in Eastern Kentucky, but when we see someone come to faith, many individuals are saying congratulations, well done, as if the work was done by their own merit, or so-and-so was a good old boy, as if he had finally calculated within his own mind enough wisdom to connect the dots that he needs a Savior. But we see here in this text that salvation, it is given to the righteous. But as we've already mentioned, where is that righteousness coming from? It's not coming from me. It's not coming from you. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Many of you probably already know this text by heart. But we see here that this righteousness that the people of God have, it's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness that comes to us from another. It is a righteousness, as we've said, earned by works, but works not performed by our own hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17-21 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. How comforting is that line? 
And maybe there's a Christian here this morning who is continuing to live in distress because you are continuing to hold yourself guilty to sins that you've done in a past spiritual life. To what sins that you have done when you were spiritually dead. Dead to the things of Christ. And you need to be reminded that when you come to faith in Christ, when the Spirit of God regenerates you, when the new birth comes to your own heart, that you have forgiveness of sins. God is no longer holding you accountable to the sins that you have committed prior to your conversion. How do we know? Because Christ was punished in your place. The cross is not double jeopardy. Jesus is not going to be punished for the sins of his people and then the Father turn to Christ's people again and punish them for that same sin. No, the atonement of Christ was sufficient and in full for all sin, past, present, and future. That's just from verse 17. Verse 18, we see that now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting, not counting their transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then, brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How? How can you be reconciled to God? Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin substitution on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, yes, Psalm 37, verse 39 does not contradict Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. The righteous do receive salvation from Yahweh. But the very righteousness righteousness that they have is from God himself. We read in our scripture reading this morning, who would dare give his life for a good person? But Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners who are made righteous in Him, in Christ. Every single one of us who has looked to the risen King in faith, we can have assurance that we will be in heaven for all eternity. Not because of our own principles of righteousness. Not because, again, of anything that you and I have ever done. But because of Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. My plea is this. Because I know that there may be a young man or a young woman. Or a grown man and a grown woman. Who had that same thinking that I did for the first 19 years of my life thinking that my justification was through my own obedience of of almost as if it's uh, God outweighing my good works versus my bad, that that was my hope for eternal life. 
To the person who thinks their transgressions to God's law and sins are covered because of how good you think you are, or how conservative your worldview or opinions may be, we beg you, those who are in Christ today, we plead with you to repent and to find your justification in Christ and in Christ's righteousness alone. What does Robert Murray McShane say? He said, every look to yourself, then take ten looks to Christ. That's the Christian pilgrimage. That's the Christian life. So many times our circumstances cause us to behold the wicked rather than Yahweh. To behold ourselves rather than Yahweh. But every time our eyes are taken to anything but the triune God, may we then fix our eyes back on the grounds of our justification, on the grounds of our hope, on the grounds of our joy, which is Christ crucified. Christ is not just necessary for your justification, beloved. Christ is necessary for your sanctification. Christ is necessary for your glorification. There is not one moment in our salvation that we do not need the gospel of Christ. And one of the reasons I think the Lord has called us to gather weekly on the Lord's day is because as sinners still, we have a tendency to forget We have a tendency to forget the means of our reconciliation to God. We live in a world where people are telling you, just try, strap yourself up by your bootstraps. Pull them up, work harder, be a better person. Be a a better father, a better husband, a better mother, a better wife. Just do better, do better. And friends, if that's our version of the good news, this moralistic, therapeutic deism that God rewards those who just do better, then there is no rest in that. There is no rest in a message of fix yourself up, do better, try harder. But there is rest in a Savior who has said it is finished. Psalm 37 verse 39 is not only the foundation for sound doctrine and a humbling reality to the prideful at heart, but it is also our steadfast hope. Take your eyes to the final line of Psalm 37, verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in times of distress. What a great comfort this was for the Israelites of David's day. And what a great comfort it is for those who find themselves in the true Israel. Christ, our King. No matter how prosperous the wicked may be, no matter how fiercely they gnash their teeth at the people of God, they have neither the power nor ability to take the salvation that has been granted from Yahweh. We know this. God has not promised us uh, an easy life in the gospel. God has not promised us physical prosperity. This preservation that we see in Psalm 37, David is not trying to convey to the Israelites that 
God will always protect us from foreign nations. In fact, we see Israel time and time again go back into captivity for their disobedience. But what we see, even with saints in the Old Testament, saints in the New Testament, is God preserve, protect his people from the evil one. We have a secure salvation in Christ. That means that no matter the circumstances of your life, no matter your trials or temptations, we do not, go, we do not swerve in and out of justification. We can have assurance. One of the things I love about Psalm 37 is that David does not try to hide the reality that the righteous endure distress. The righteous suffer. And we see that throughout the Psalms. In fact, David, one of the primary themes in Psalm 37 is the reality of the wicked amid the righteous. We live amongst the wicked. We live amongst the presence of sin. But our hope remains steadfast Not because of what we see on the news headlines, but because of the salvation that is from Yahweh. And I want us to see two primary implications of this. And the first is that this salvation produces steadfast hope because the triune God who began our salvation is the same God who will see it to completion. I want to read a few texts for you. John 6, 37 through 40. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me. That all that he has given me, I lose nothing. And notice Christ's confidence in that those whom the Father has given him will not lose their salvation. Christ doesn't put that confidence on the people themselves, but on his own faithfulness to secure, to complete the work of redemption in which the Father has orchestrated. I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Romans 8 verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Philippians 1 6. For I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we do not set our hope in the Christian life that God is going to deliver us from all forms of distress. And if there is any Christian in here who thinks that, man, following Christ has been easy thus far for me, just give it time. Life will come. Hardship will come. The wicked will gnash their teeth at you. But remember, we follow a crucified Savior. Not a political king who established a kingdom here on earth, but a Redeemer who came to earth and this fallen world system crucified the King of glory. 
But praise be to God that this form, this greatest sin in crucifying the the Son of God was the very means of our reconciliation to God. And so our hope again in the Christian life is not to avoid distress, but in the midst of our distress to find a faithful, covenant-keeping God in the midst of our distress with us. This salvation also produces steadfast hope because throughout the pages of Scripture, in the Old Testament, through the tops and shadows, in the New Testament, in the person of work in Jesus, we are encouraged to find our delight, comfort, and peace, not in the circumstances of this present life, but in the hope of the eternal life to come. And I don't want to share just two texts of of how the New Testament causes us to fix our gaze not on this life, but on the life to come. Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and I know we could read countless texts in this regard, but just to, for the sake of time, Paul in Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's an already but not yet salvation. We've received our justification. You and I will not be any more justified when our faith becomes sight than we are right now. Praise be to God for that. Praise be to God for that. When we die and go to heaven... You will be just as justified in glory when you're beholding your Savior with your very eyes as you are here this morning at Risen King. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6-8 through For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul tells Timothy. Paul is anticipating immense suffering and persecution. And the time of my departure has come. Paul knows He will soon be put to death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Where does Paul fix his eyes? On this present suffering? On this present life? On this present distress? Or where does the salvation that is from Yahweh motivate Paul to fix his eyes in the midst of suffering? Paul says, in the future... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I do not know what distress you may be going through this morning. But Christian, I do know that God is going through the distress with you. He has not promised us rest in the world, but only rest in him. Take your eyes back to verse 7 of Psalm 37. David says, be still in Yahweh, in the triune God. Be still, trust in him, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret. And It's amazing, David says, do not fret three times in the first eight verses. Do not be dismayed. Do not live the Christian life defeated. Anticipate distress. 
We're either getting ready to go into distress in the midst of distress or getting ready to exit distress for a new season of distress in the Christian life. But that is not a reason for us to be dismayed. Why? Because of the man who carries out the schemes of wickedness? No, we shouldn't be dismayed because of him. Because the Lord laughs at the wicked and sees that their days are coming. We have reason for hope in the Christian life because of who our God is. Our throne God, Father, Son, and Spirit. What you've received in Him, no man can take away. No suffering can take away. No distress can take away. You may have reason for anxiety in your life for various reasons, but don't ever have a reason to be dismayed at the salvation you have received in Yahweh. For that's sure, that's a firm foundation in which you can rest in. As I come to a close, I want to remind us, there are two types of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked. And according to Scripture, the wicked are not chiefly defined as those who commit various sins like theft, murder, or sexual morality. I want us to see that because it's easy, especially for younger believers, to think of the wicked here in Psalm 37 as these individuals who commit these great acts of, of, of evil. But friend, the wicked are those who commit the apex of all sins, which is the rejection of the Son of God. Many people spurn Christ because of a fear of missing out on the good life. But dear friend, may the Spirit help you see today that the good life is receiving the salvation that is from Yahweh. When I was 19 years old, I needed to hear that. I needed to feel the weight of urgency for me to respond to the call of the gospel. The gospel is not a mere suggestion. The gospel is a command. Turn from your sin. Look to Christ and to Him alone. Don't offer any of your good works, for there are none. But only behold the Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Look to Him and trust that what He finished in His life, death, and resurrection, that it is enough to reconcile you to the triune God. And upon reconciliation, may you finally rest from the weary load of sin that we've all carried at one point or another. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, says the Lord Jesus, and I will give you rest. I want to end, I want to end with verses 16 through 17 of our psalm. Never forget this, church. Better, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. We may not have all the possessions. We may not have every form of comfort this life could give. But if we have Christ, we have enough. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ.
For without Christ, we have no reason to gather. Our faith is in vain if what Christ finished was not sufficient for us. But praise be to God that it was. For we know that we worship a true risen King who has proven to us that what He has accomplished in and of Himself is sufficient to save sinners like us. Oh, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would not just use the word that has been administered to us to encourage us this morning. But, Father, may this word find good soil, and I pray that it already has, soil that will bear fruit, lasting fruit, that will testify to a watching world we have not just fixed ourselves up. We have not just added religion into our, our lives. We are not just adding good works into our lives. Oh, Lord, may people see in us a salvation that can't come from ourselves, that can't come from anything that this world has to offer, but a salvation, a transformed life, a living hope that has come from you and you alone. Therefore, to God alone be the glory in the church. Amen.